Thank you for listening to the following film's podcast. Today I'm joined by director Michael John Warren to discuss his latest film, Spring Awakening, Those You've Known. Spring Awakening was a groundbreaking show that took the Broadway musical and broke the mold. The original cast of the Tony Award-winning hit Broadway musical recently came together to support the Actors Fund for a special one-night-only performance, and now HBO documentary films will bring the remarkable reunion show to viewers on May 3rd on HBO and HBO Max. I had a great time speaking with Michael about this film, and I hope you will check this out because I highly recommend this one. Even if it's something where you're not familiar with the Broadway musical itself, I think there's a lot you can get out of watching this particular documentary. I had a great time with it. I wasn't familiar with Spring Awakening before going into this, and now after watching this documentary, I've listened to the soundtrack album several times, and I'm not somebody who does that for Broadway musicals, so I definitely recommend this. Uh, Big thanks to Bookman's for sponsoring the show, and thanks to Fort Worth for letting me use the song at the end. Hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for taking time out of your morning to do this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking time to talk about our film. You know, all of us involved in making it feel really, really um, passionate about it. And so, you know, we're thrilled that people want to talk to us. We, we're excited to spread the word about this movie. Well, it's something that I was um, went into it with a, the slightest bit of trepidation with sure. having never seen the original show. And so I think there'll be a lot of people that are in a similar position than I am, you know, based right. in Tucson, Arizona. It's something that I had heard about it, I think, when in 2010-ish in that area when they did the second tour. Um, but I had never seen it. And so it was something I, you know, kind of was on that list of, I'd like to check that out. That sounds interesting. But right. I don't think it's necessary for this. I think it would probably enrich the experience if you have seen it and you'd get, gain a lot from it. But really, I don't think that's necessary, which is something that's pretty special. Well, thank you for that. And and Chris, uh, here's a dirty secret for you. Like I had never seen Spring Awakening before I directed this documentary. I knew what it was. It's my wife's favorite musical. Um, I knew it was special. I knew it had this huge success. Um, and, and frankly, I'll say this about documentary work. Sometimes it's good not to know everything about something when you make a film about it, because I like to of course, respect the work and honor the work and understand the true depths of the work. But I often want to be a bridge to another world. Um, I think that films can do that. Um, And so my ignorance or my um, lack of experience with this film um, was the starting place. And so I really got to dig into the film and figure it out. And thank you for saying that you think that this is a film for people who aren't necessarily fans of Spring Awakening or Broadway, because I really worked hard to make it like a film that you can walk in cold if you're just sort of in the mood for a really moving documentary. And if you're in the mood to have, to hear a conversation about some of these universal truths of the teenage experience and the relationship between teenagers and their parents, um, and to really hopefully be moved by some gorgeous music and hopefully some, um, hopefully some, you know, um, exciting filmmaking. Um, so yeah, we, we put a lot of work into not leaving people in the dust. So if you're out there and you're like, how oh, that sounds really interesting. Don't even hesitate because I promise you, you can jump right in. Chris has said it here himself. You can <laughs> jump right in and you're going to, the water's fine. It's not too choppy. You're going to really enjoy yourself and you're not going to feel lost. And it's not, 
it's not really about the reunion. I, I realize that that's like going to be on the posters and that helps a lot of people sort of get excited about this. The reunion is just a backdrop. It's just the lens that we move through to have this larger conversation about these universal truths. Um, and so I'm glad that that's your first observation because that, I mean, you're, you've made me really happy by saying that. Well, it, it's, I think so you touched on several things there that I wanted to get into in this. And one, the first thing that grabs me about this is the the music in this is yeah. front and center and these particular songs that were attached to this i can see why people hold this so dearly and have such fond memories and we're so excited yeah. for this reunion because the music here is so powerful and really unique unto itself and pretty um unlike other things that you see on broadway even today absolutely and that's why i said even if you're not a broadway fan you might be into this one because duncan sheik who wrote the music steven Sater wrote the lyrics but duncan sheik wrote the music and he was on the pop charts before he even did this. And he is not a musical fan. Still to this day, he's a little bit like, oh, I guess we're doing this. Um, and he says it in the film. And he was really reluctant to even do a musical. Um, and so his approach to it was, I'm not gonna make a Broadway show. I'm not writing Broadway music. The other thing I wanna point out is, this show separates itself from a lot of the other Broadway shows out there because they made a conscious decision to not, let plot sort of unfold within the songs. Cute. And yeah, yeah this, this shows about every time the kids pull out a microphone, they start singing, they're singing their inner monologue. They're, they're, they're saying the things that they, they don't dare say out loud. And there's a lot of power in that. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's not, I, my best friend is like really not into musical theater and he'll probably watch this if I make him. But I think like if there's one that's going to get him a little bit, it's probably this one because he, because of all the reasons I've said the, the these are not Broadway tunes. They're really not like these are rock. These are rock songs, beautiful rock songs that that can and were on the radio. Um, and um, and again, the lyrics aren't. They're not Sondheim like where it's a million words a second and you better keep up. And, you know, this, yeah. this, it's not like that. It's, it's really these songs that grab your ear, like grab a hold of your ear and climb into your brain and just sit there forever um, in the best possible way. I know that sounded aggressive, but it's quite an enjoyable takeover of your mind. Oh, absolutely. And if you if you're not when, just outside of the context of the story of the production itself, if you hear. Uh, what was it? it's the dark I know well if you hear yeah. that song on its own by itself it's a I'm getting literal goosebumps yeah. just thinking about that yeah. and the performance of that I mean it's beautifully sung it's beautifully written and it's just such a powerful piece that I think completely stands on its own and a lot of these musical numbers do they would stand they you're right they would stand as a pop song where there is something that feels very internal and very personal and it doesn't feel despite the fact this is an, what, 18th century Germany and they're pulling out microphones yeah. in the middle of it. And yeah. it it's obviously all over the place like that, but there's something about that lack of connection and cohesion that actually I think really does speak to the teenage experience. Yeah. And, it, and it's somewhat abstract in a way, right? And yeah. there's so much power in abstraction. Um, and, you know, I think I think some of the early feedback for the show was like, what's going on here? Right. But at the same time, people are like standing and applauding and crying and they, they, they feel so touched by what's happening. So they, the creators of the creators of the show did this brilliant job of giving you just enough to hang, to hang the story on just enough to keep you going along, but allowing you to fill in your own meaning for a lot of these things. And there's a lot of power in that. Um, and audiences for me, 
for me personally, and I won't speak for rec- all audiences, but I hate it when I know everything that's going to happen in the movie. And I hate when thing- I hate when I feel like I'm being dumb, spoken down to or sort of, you know, dumbed down for. Um, and this show doesn't do that. The show gives you a lot of beautiful music, a lot of plot, but there, there's a lot for you to figure out yourself. Um, and there's a, there's a, you know, there's a lot of power. And I actually think that keeps the audience engaged more than sort of something that's over-explained and, and, and too literal. And could you talk a little bit about how you decided on the visual uh, style of this film? Because the, there's a notoriously long history of Broadway documentaries and shoots that are not very good. Um, so I, I would say that this is, I, there's some wonderful ones, but it's just, I think there tends to be a, just put the camera on sticks, let it stand there and yeah. just capture that. And I think that we've moved past that a little bit. I think Spike Lee yeah. did a wonderful job with his, I think uh, I know, he did. David he did Byrne did an amazing job with that, that collaboration yeah. they had, I think it was beautiful. And there's been several examples of it, but most of what I've seen never captures that feeling of what you get in the audience. Yeah. So I think the first Broadway show that was ever filmed in its entirety on a Broadway stage was Rent in 2008, mm. which yeah. I directed. And I made a I made a really bold. Sorry to sorry to bring it back to me, but um, <laughs> but it really was a decision I made back then that I was I I do a lot of multi camera work and and I feel like you do. I really despise a lot of multi camera work. I find it to be to choke the life out of the performance. And I'm I am a former musician mm-hmm. and a performer on some level. Um, and I always felt like these things like you you film something and it loses all of its all of its magic. And I made a conscious choice back in two thousand and eight to take the rule book of multi-camera filming and chuck it out the window. Um, And if you watch that film, well, I'll just say that when I was filming it, I remember there was a lot of executives behind me freaking the F out. I'll just put it that way. Um, And then they saw the edit of of that film and they were very supportive. I'll just put it that way. And then then we did a a number of other ones after that. And uh, I'm not taking credit for helping launch. You know what? I'll take credit for helping launch. Take it. Take it. Why not? Um, But for me, the camera being locked off, the camera has to dance with the performance and the camera has to find things as well. I'm a documentarian. Like I come from verite documentary. So when the camera's hunting for it, like I love that. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, this feels alive. It doesn't feel sort of stayed. And it's not, it's not like choking the life out of something. And so I really love the cameras being loose. And um, and it's not just how you shoot it, it's how you cut it too, right? I think things are cut wrong all the time as well. Um, and and so it's really a matter of filming it with sort of this reckless abandon. I don't know how else to call it. And then editing, and then it makes the editing a little harder, but it, it it gives you the room to make it even better. And so thank you for noticing that. I feel really strongly about my approach to, to how, I, how, how I photograph live events um, and edit them. And so thank you for noticing that. that means well, a lot. I, I think that that's the, the best way to capture that yeah. feeling of being in an audience because you're... You, your eye line is all over the place. You're not just staring straight down, right. focused right exactly. down the middle uh, the whole time. There's the perfume next to you, the guy coughing behind you. There's all these things that are going on and you find something in the background that you dial into for a moment that it might not be the thing that you should be watching, but it's something that captures your imagination. And when you go in with right. that reckless abandon, I think you find those moments of, for lack of a better word, transcendence, the things that actually matter as opposed to just right. showing, here's everything you figure it out. Yeah. One of my favorite shots of, of um, those you've known is actually during the dark, you know, well, 
And it's when Laura Pritchard's singing her part. And then we cut back to Lily Cooper, who just hangs her head. She's like, in the shadows. Like, I sh- like why are we using yeah. a shot that's not even lit, right? But she just hangs her head. And there's so much power in this moment of someone who's not even singing. Um, and there's a lot of little nuances um, that, you know, I think sort of go against your initial instincts. But uh, again, as a documentarian, I'm always looking for those subplots and those little nuances that, that um, help bring emotion to it in a way that isn't sort of the headline. It's like these, this, the subtext within what's happening. Um, and so, you know, I'm always trying to do that. And um, yeah. Today's episode of the following films podcast is brought to you by Bookman's. So when I went into Bookman's today, after speaking with Harry, I wanted to look for Heaven Can Wait. I figured it was a shot in the dark, but I knew that there were three versions of it. So there was the Damamichi version that I'm not even sure what year that came out, but it was the original, I think. I I think that's the original Heaven Can Wait. And then there was the one with Warren Beatty from 78. And then there was a remake that was done by Chris Rock called Down to Earth. And I was open to seeing any of these, all three of these would have been cool. Any one of these, if it would have been there after um, thinking about hereafter, this would have been something I would want to watch. And so fortunately, when I went in, the one that I wanted to see the most, the one with Warren Beatty was actually there. Um, and this movie was directed by Warren Beatty. Um, and it, I think it was nominated for like nine Academy Awards. It's something that in my mind, because this was on HBO a lot when I was a kid. And I think I took this movie for granted for a long time that I didn't realize how amazing this film is, that how profound and beautifully shot it is. And this is just a great film. And this conversation uh, that I had for Hereafter reminded me of that. And it was something I really wanted to revisit. And this movie is phenomenal. If you haven't seen it, um, definitely do yourself a favor and check it out. Because Warren Beatty basically plays a, a quarterback, a backup quarterback for the Rams. And he's about to go into the Super Bowl. And then when he's riding through this tunnel, um, he ends up getting into a car accident and passes away. And so it's about the choices that you make in life and the things that are left unsaid and kind of dealing with that. And, um, he refuses to believe that his time was up and he decides to investigate what happened. And it's really interesting film. Um, and it's something that you should definitely see if you haven't seen it or you haven't seen it in a long time. Like I had since I was a kid, it's one that's definitely worth revisiting. And, that's one thing that I really, really love about every time I go into Bookman's that even when I have something very specific in mind or something general, I'm walking the door and there's a good chance that if I might not have the exact thing that I'm looking for, there's going to be something similar to it. And I might end up just stumbling across something that I didn't even know that I was, uh, that I was looking for. So whenever I'm looking for movies, Blu-rays, DVDs, VHS, I always go there first, first place I check out, but also a great place to look for vinyl as well as instruments. They have tons of them. I actually was able to pick up an acoustic bass a couple weeks ago, and I've been playing it almost daily since then. Um, but yeah, remember, Bookman's, they have your cool covered. Enjoy the rest of the show. Yeah, I, I think, again, not to go back to Rent, but like Rent was a, is a really complex show with Sondheim-like lyrics, right? And you watch Rent live, and it just is like... But you could use the, the subtitles on that thing when you see it performed live because there's a yeah. if I, I saw it live for the first time is when I saw that show. So that is something that if you don't know it, if you're not familiar with the music ahead of time, you need a second watch just to absorb everything. Yeah. But when you shoot it and edit it, you can 
you can bring everyone's eye to yeah. like, this is the, there's four people singing right now, but this is the main plot. Or you can do a thing where you're, you're helping focus people because rent happens on multiple levels and this huge yep. cinema, all, all these actors and a little bit can, can be a little bit challenging to really get it, get all of it. Um, and so I brought all that back to this film as well. Um, and then of course, got the ability to weave documentary elements into it as, uh, on another level. And I'm so lucky as a director to get to, do these big multi-camera things, but also these single camera things. And to find to find the seams between those um, is another whole discipline outside of just the multi-cam stuff that we're talking about. And two things that I love doing, and when I get to combine them, it's something that I really cherish. And hopefully it served the film well this time around. Oh, yeah, I would. Uh, yes, I. it's something that I think when it's not servicing the narrative, not servicing the film, it stands out. So yes. when it's working, it feels like, yes, that was the way you had to do that. This makes sense. This is logical. And I think that's what this film feels like. Um, when you're jumping back and forth between the rehearsal and the original production and then to the reunion, and you kind of like build up to that crescendo of that in a way, and you can go back and forth. There's, there's a, you're very deliberate. And when you're finding those moments, and I think that it feels so seamless that it's the work that had to be incredibly difficult to figure out that timing feels very obvious. It feels like, oh yeah, that's just how they found it. But that's are you an editor? Weird. Are you an editor? Because that is so true what you just said. Like I, I always talk about good editing is never noticed because it's yep. good editing. It's like you never notice it. It just happens. It's and um and my editor on this Josh Pearson who just won an Academy Award for his work on um they won best documentary at the uh, the Academy Awards for Summer Soul Quest Love's film that yeah, radical great movie. Also. Amazing movie. Great movie. I've known Josh, we don't, I think 15, 20 years, and we've collaborated in the past, but we really went full in, full on on this one. We edited this film in weeks, not months. That's what's crazy about it, is how crazy the structure of this film is and how quickly we did it. And frankly, it's like, this was where we've done a lot of this kind of work, both single camera documentary, both the multi-camera. And luckily we had this incredible story producer, uh, Katie Dunn, who was like a one woman story department. It was taking me and Josh, like talking a million miles an hour and finding all the little bits and being like this and like, yeah, that and like moving really quickly. So what's crazy about the edit for this is how fast it happens. Um, and thank God I had, I would call, you know, he's, he's, in, he's incomparable. I don't know many editors, the best, many of the best editors in the world couldn't have made this movie, even if they had all the time in the world, but Josh did it in weeks, not months. And, um, and thank goodness for him and Radical Media for getting me him um, because, you know, I think it really shows up on the screen. I, I agree 100%. And yes, the idea of editing should be invisible, but yeah. it, and it is something it doesn't call attention to itself. It feels that way. But somebody who has sat there trying to cut things in the past, you can watch it and you go, God damn, that, that was a minor miracle. What I just witnessed right yeah. now. It's just, it's something that you can stand back and just see if you've ever sat there and tried to put things together yourself. And you know yeah. how arduous and difficult a task that is something that it's the most thankless and important job probably in filmmaking. <laughs> yeah. I think they get, I, I, we used to call, I was an editor for before I was a director and I had a, a small collective of editors that we used to do all this um, work together. We call ourselves the wizards council, which is completely <laughs> absurd. And uh, you know, so ego driven and why we were obviously being stupid about it, but um that's sort of how it works. It's like your normal people can't edit. Actually, everyone's like, I want to come to the edit. That's I hear that's where the magic happens. I'm like, it is, but you're going to want to leave in 20 minutes because you have to be wired to sit there for, you know, literally hundreds of hours and, and, and 
just sort of not move. Uh, it's, it's, it's not normal people who can jump into that kind of work. And so, um, thankfully, um, I, I, thankfully I have a pretty deep bench of really gifted editors who come on different projects with me and, you know, I really appreciate them because having been a, a documentary editor for many years, um, I know what, I know what it's like to be in that chair and yeah. It's not, it's not an easy job and it's something no. where I, I'm in awe of it because I can never divorce myself from the information that I have in my mind. And so yeah. I know this. And so I'm assuming that the audience knows this as well. And I, I need fresh eyes constantly to look at something to say, do you understand this moment that I'm trying to convey right now? And right. it's just when you're hundreds of hours deep and looking through all these different points of view and trying to pick up and in documentary, you don't even some the best documentaries to me, they don't go in with an objective with a story. They find it after it's been done. I know. And I it's just, what a, I mean, you know, you, you have 400 hours of footage and you're trying to get that down, distill it down to one and a half hours. That's insane to me. So yeah. It is insane. Awesome. Thank you. I, I, um, I, I don't know how to explain, explain it other than like, for whatever reason, when I was young, I was, I became a lead editor on documentary series at a very young age. And, um, and it was because for whatever reason, I could see the path fast. I don't know why that is. And, and now, and now I luckily have people who can also see the path fast, but I'm trying to serve, I'm trying to serve it up for my editors now, because I know if we can get through that, what the hell is going on phase of the edit, then we can start to like put the bells and whistles on and smooth this transition. And always oh, go back to that scene that we had to drop because now it fits here. And, because we're always under a deadline and this one we're under a crazy deadline. And so I actually mapped out the entire film, me and Josh and Katie Don mapped it out. And there's literally a map that shows you, here's all the songs, here's all the plot points in, is there's four plot points? I can't remember if I talked to you about this yet, but there's oh, the, there, okay. There's the creation of, there's the, the show that happens on stage, the script. Right. There's the creation of that original production. There is the reunion, which is the backdrop for the entire movie. These people coming back to the story 15 years later. And then there's the love story between Leah and Groff. Sure. And I would argue there's probably a couple other subplots along the way, but those are the four main ones. And that's two more plots than you really need for a movie. So, and so we're like, but I was like, we have to use all of them. And if I didn't have the people I had working with me, I probably would have had to abandon one of those plot lines. But we sat there, I broke down the entire script, every lyric. I was like, what is this lyric about? What's this song about? And then like, I literally have a breakdown of the, of every single song and everything that happens in the play. And then we started working out our um, major plot points that happened in the interviews, the stories we were getting and all these different things. We literally drew out the movie. You can see a map that we made. It's like this song, like the, the best example, one of the most obvious examples to me is um, uh, you're uh, totally fucked. I don't know if I can swear on the show, but this oh, song no, no, is no, called, please, please, by all means, go ahead. Yeah. The song is called Totally Fucked. And and you're watching Groff and, and the gang perform it on stage in 2021. And, but you're also hearing the story about them almost closing while they go on Broadway. Yeah. And it's this back and forth where you're, you're watching, um, you're watching them almost fail. And he keeps saying, Hey, you're totally fucked. And then right as the song sort of crescendos, you find out they sweep the Tonys and it cuts back to Groff going like, yes. And then like totally fucked then becomes like totally fuck you sort of. And it's this really cool mashup of these different plots threading together. And we do that a number of times through the, throughout the movie, but that's the most obvious one. You're like, well, 
you, yeah, you do it also. It's almost like a bookend with the bitch of living where you're kind of, you're setting that. And I think those two almost act like bookends to the film at this, you know, kind of beginning start where you, it's not the exact beginning of it. Yeah, of it's just that, you know, kind of working, there's that symmetry to this film. And it's something that I, I adore this movie. Thank this you. is something that I, it made me want to go out and find a copy of the original production and watch this. I actually went on looking for it on Amazon last night, looking for the soundtrack because the, I think the music's yeah. beautiful here. So, yeah. and this is something that people like me, you know, the knuckle draggers out there that aren't cultured and nowhere near a Broadway, we need more exposure to this stuff. So thank you for that. Well, I agree so much with what you just said there. I, one of my things about this film is, so there's all, we're talking about a lot of technique and, and thank you for talking about it. I could, I could bore you for hours about you. You wouldn't bore me. That's where my okay. Yeah. All right. So I can really go on about this a lot, but I I do want to say that technique is for me. Technique is just to service the greater good, which is the story and the meaning of the story. And this film, for me, when I really dug in, it just showed up to me. I'm like this. This film could be could has the potential to be something special just based off of what the original show was and the universal truths and the teenage angst and parents not listening to their children, all those important points. Um, and what can happen if you don't let your children be who they truly are. Um, and then I started getting all these incredible interviews from the cast and like really starting to dig in. Um, and thank God for HBO, right? Like what an honor for me. I've been doing this for a long time and I've gotten to work with a lot of the networks and all the studios. And it's so obvious to me what a great partner HBO is. I'm really world-class, you know, very in, in the top, you know, in that top of the list. Yeah. Um, they're so, they're so, so good at what they do. Um, and then really, really, really um, stood behind us on it. And they're going to bring this to a larger audience now. And so for me, I saw the chance to flex all my technical muscles and I can do multi-cam and single camera. And I'll do this crazy structure and all those things. But why I really love this film and the reason why I was so excited to do it is because I knew that if we could pull it off, we would hit all these important plot points that I think the world needs now. You said it, this, this, this original text was written in 1891 and it's more relevant in 2022, I believe, than it was back then, which is a little depressing, frankly, but... My hope is that if we keep revisiting some of these themes, we can inch towards progress, you know, progress somehow um, and, 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 and start to have open dialogues about some of these sticky bits about humanity. Um, and so, you know, hopefully this film travels far and wide and finds the people who need to hear these things because there's always going to be angsty teenagers out there. There's always going to be people who are facing traumas and trying to overcome them. Um, and, you know, hopefully this, this film finds those people and they hear it and it, it inspires them to soldier on or, or to do whatever it is they need to do to make, to live their fullest life. And I, and I know we're out of time, but the last thing that I think is the other side of that, that's really important is the way that people like you and I, people that are, have more years away from our teenage years than we yeah. did when we were there. Um, it's important to look back at that time in your life, honestly, and without um, a looking down on, and you don't know yet. Yeah. And, you know, just because these are your first bruises and you don't have calluses and you're not cynical right. yet, doesn't mean these feelings that you're feeling aren't completely real. And I, I think yeah. that that allows you to re-engage with that time in your life. That I think we look back at with dishonest eyes a lot of the time. Absolutely. And, and that's part of getting older. And, and I think it's part of older that you should fully ignore. 
right? Um, because I, I don't want to get too deep about it, but um, my favorite scene in this movie, or one of my favorite scenes in the movie is the funeral scene. Because mm-hmm. um, I think there's such an important message there. Um, and it's a warning. And I choke up because um, because I lost someone to suicide. Anyway, and so I think the messages in that scene are really important. No, it's um, unfortunately, I don't know anyone who hasn't been touched, affected by that through their own personal experience of that time in their life or somebody who hasn't just had somebody they love that then those feelings that you have around that when you lose somebody that you're connected to and the wake that that leaves behind is something that we just we have to talk about more we have to we have to talk about mental health we have to talk about this we can't ignore this shit anymore the stigma that was that i'm 46 and the stigma that was around depression when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, yeah, exactly. I, I'm glad to see it improving and going away more, but it, we have to knock down those barriers and those doors and embrace um, our humanity and how ugly yeah. and scary it can be. You don't want to experience that. And it's important as adults to understand how serious some of those situations can be. And hopefully this show can remind people that this film can remind people of, you know, how significant some of those conversations are and how desperately needed they are. Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. And that's one of the reasons that I do love this film, that it does. It, it inspires conversations that need to happen. It's not just a reunion show. It's not just Thank you. a simple capturing this one moment in time. It's capturing this group's humanity and it's very specific. And because it's so hyper-specific, it speaks to all of us, I think. I agree 100%. I'm glad you feel the same way. Hopefully people will get to see it. I know they're, they will. luckily, like I said, we're, we're already making a lot of noise. So hopefully <laughs> hopefully people tune in on um, Tuesday, May 3rd at 9 p.m. on HBO and on HBO Max. And, well, you know, I think, um, you know, I'm excited to see, I'm, I'm excited to hear the feedback from the general public. You're going to, you're going to hear nothing but good feedback, man. This is, this is a good uh, we'll one. See, we'll see, here. we'll see. Fuck them. They're I don't wrong. Jinx if, if, they, if they disagree with me, they're wrong. I don't, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right uh, on this one. I'll, I'll, let, I'll let the New York Times know. Please. Yeah. They made, they made mistakes before. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Time enough to figure you out. Time enough to write this down. Wish me luck. Give me hope.
boys crack.